Here's a question for you. What is the most famous verse in the Old Testament? For the Jews, what was the most famous, what is the most famous verse in what we would call the Old Covenant? The Tanakh, according to the Jews. The answer is Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. There we read these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It starts off, hear, O Israel. And the first word is in Hebrew, Shema. And we recite the Shema. And as we do, we're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear. The word Shema means hear. It comes from that first word in the text. Hear, O Israel. Hear this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's something of a creed, and yet it is the most famous verse for Jews, just as for Gentiles, John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is the counterpart in terms of Jewish thinking. This is the most famous verse, and it's interesting to me, as we go to the book of Mark now, I hope you have uh, nimble fingers today, as we go to God's Word, Mark chapter 12, we see Jesus and we see him quoting something familiar to us. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Look with me in verse 28. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment? is the most important of all. Jesus answered, the most important is, now notice this, he's answering the question, what is the greatest, the most important commandment? And the answer is, the most important is, he then quotes the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's as if Jesus is giving legitimacy to the idea that this is the most famous verse and the most important verse in the Old Testament. When asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? He comes back, the most important is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He goes on, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second the second what? The second commandment, the second most important commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The, there is no other commandment greater than these. So he lists these two as the greatest of the commandments. And as we look at verse 30, one of the components of loving God is to love him with all our mind. And I think it's the least emphasized of the listing of components, heart, soul, mind, strength. There's so little focus given to loving God with all our mind. We speak much about uh, the soul, loving him with all our heart, our strength, our energy, all of that. And yet a component of loving God is all your mind. In the modern day church, that's almost been lost. I remember a lady coming up to me after a sermon and said, you really made me think. And I could tell by the way she said it, she wasn't pleased. She wanted to have her mind be undisturbed in a sermon. And I was violating that rest that she wanted. <laughs> no, we are to love the Lord with our mind. To think right thoughts after him, that's part of worship to allow our minds to probe the scripture and think through what the Bible says. In fact, uh, Paul writes that in the New Testament, think through what I say and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Understanding when it comes is given by God, but the means is thinking. Love the Lord with all your mind. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, let me simply quote it, but grow in grace 
and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge, they are counterparts. The way we grow in grace, that means to mature as a Christian, is to grow in the knowledge of our God and Saviour, Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Turn now in your Bibles in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I want to, again, uh, encourage you to be looking at these in your Bible. It, it's not only to make sure that uh, I'm telling you what the Bible is saying, but it allows us to fix our minds more thoroughly on what is being taught. I'm going to use that word taught in a moment, and we'll see why. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul writes this. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, in context, he's dealing with the issue of tongues and its use in the first century church here. But notice the principle I'm drawing out of this. In the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others. One translation reads, instruct, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. I'd like you now to go to the right in your New Testament to Galatians, Galatians chapter 6. There we read familiar words, verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The word taught and the word teaches are the same in the original Greek of the New Testament, Koine Greek. And also I'd like us to go to the book of Acts, back this time, back to the book of Acts chapter 18. And we have... Uh, Apollos in view. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, he was accurate in what he did know. He just did not know the whole story. And as the uh, story is unfolded, that is corrected and he is given greater understanding. But I, again, just want to focus on a single word here. He had been instructed. Do you see that in the text? He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, the verse we've quoted, Galatians 6, 6, two times. And then in Acts chapter 18, verse 25, we uh, come across words like instruct, taught, teaches, and again, instructed. And in each of these verses, the original word here for instruct or teach or taught is katekeo, K-A-T-E. C-H-E-O in English, katecheo. And it's from this word we get our English word, catechize. If you come to a King's Church service, by intention you will hear these words in the liturgy. To catechize simply means to teach biblical truth in an orderly way. Generally, this is done with questions and answers, accompanied by biblical support and explanation. You'll hear these words, not because we just want to fill in time, but we believe that these words are significant and they are an explanation of what we do in the service when we go through a catechism, a question from the catechism, the Word of Truth catechism is what we're using presently. Uh, a question is read out and then an answer is given, which is on the back of the bulletin and all in the congregation supply the answer to the question. And it's a way of learning. It's a way of being taught. 
We are using a catechism to catechize, to instruct, to teach. And I love the fact that the word catecheo is a, is a biblical word, and what we're doing is a biblical thing. There's a pattern of doctrine in our Bibles, and it means that as we read Genesis through to the book of Revelation, we learn things about who God is. He has revealed himself in his word. We learn about how to approach him, what salvation is and how to be saved. We learn who Jesus is. He is one in person, two in nature. We, 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 he is truly God, truly man. His deity is forever in view, both in the Old and in the New Testament. And his humanity after the incarnation is also in view. There is one God and one uh, mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the fullness of deity in bodily form, Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says. And we need to be instructed in these things. Who God is, Trinity, one God, three persons. And so we are to harmonize all that we see in Scripture, including starting off with the Shema. There's only one God. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God. And yet the revelation of Scripture is that this one God is eternally three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to be instructed in these things. And to be instructed in these things, the Beth methodology is to teach and catechize. Through the centuries, this has been proven to be true. I said a moment ago that there is a pattern, a biblical pattern of doctrine. For example, in Romans chapter 6, let's go there. We're going now to the left again in our Bibles, to Romans chapter 6. And as you read through Romans, you may have uh, seen this, but again, the job and the, the wonderful job of a Bible teacher is, is to read through passages of, of Scripture and like a tour guide say, uh, did, you just, did you see this when you read Romans? Did you see that? Uh, just as, as you might go to London, a tour guide will, will say, now, now look at the third story, you'll see a plaque. Uh, the, the third story of this house, you'll see a plaque. And, and, and something significant happened just outside the front doors of this house. And they've put a plaque up here that says, da 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 And they're explaining what you might have missed without the tour guide. Well, I have that uh, duty and also delight to point out things in the Scripture. And I'm sure you've read Romans 6. But have you noticed verse 17, an aspect of it? Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves, you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart, look at this next phrase, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now he's making a broader point here. But again, notice this, Paul writing to the Romans knew something about them. If he's writing to the Roman church, the church at Rome, he knows that the recipients of this letter have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. The standard of teaching. The uh, standard of teaching is the ESV. Another translation reads, that form of teaching to which you were committed, that form of teaching. Let me quote 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Those early disciples on the day of Pentecost, it was said of them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the teaching that came from the apostles. This is significant. Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, understood 
they've had a form of teaching. They've had a standard of teaching. We might call it Christianity 101 in our lingo in the 21st century, but there was some way in which those early Christians were subject to the teaching of Scripture in a form, in a standard. There was a standard of teaching so that there was a harmonization of what the Bible taught and that was what was given as a standard so that Paul could write and say, if you've been at the church any length of time, I thank the Lord you've from your heart have become obedient to that form of teaching, who God is, who Jesus is, what the way of salvation is. And when you understand that, you realize that's the task of every church to teach the people the standard of teaching, the form of teaching. And there's no better place to do that than in the historic creeds and confessions. And uh, these are, it's so amazing. I'm so full right now. I just want to burst, but I've got to ask the Lord to calm me down and say, help me teach this Lord. Because once we see it, we'll, we'll, we'll gravitate towards things that I thought we'd never gravitate towards when I was in the charismatic sector of the church. No, 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 no. You just want to be led by the Holy Spirit and you, you, you just by osmosis, I guess, just being around the Bible, something will stick. No, a thousand times no. We should be catechized. We should be taught. We should be instructed. We should be taught. And that means someone teaches who knows a little bit more than those who are being taught. I'm always encouraged when I hear of missionary efforts and uh, the missionary who is uh, going out there, finds a church or establishes a church, and before they leave, if they do ever leave, they, they, they have established a church and they've assigned someone, some man, to lead the church that has now emerged. And uh, he may have been the first convert under the ministry of the missionary. But he's about three or four weeks ahead of others, and that's the way the church progresses. As he flies back to his homeland, he, I'm sure, will go revisit. But he leaves the church in the hands of someone who's just a little bit ahead of the others. And uh, oftentimes I've heard of the one who's been set as the pastor, as other elders are emerging. He, he writes to the missionary and says, I I'm about a week ahead of my congregation. I laugh at that, but there's a truth to that. I, I'm just a little bit ahead. I, I, I'm learning and I'm passing on all that I learned to the people I'm leading. And then after I've done that, I've run out of resources, but I can learn with the books you've given me. Uh, thank you, missionary. I can learn a little more and then instruct a little more. I learn a little more, instruct a little more. That should be the assignment of every church. It should be true that in a good church, you are growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't believe you can grow in grace without knowledge. It's not a feeling. It's not uh, the setting of the moods of a service uh, by means of the music that will cause you to grow. No, it's getting truth between your ears. It's getting truth between my ears and allowing the Holy Spirit to help us apply that truth. But you can't apply what you don't know. You have to know it first. We are to love the Lord our God with all our mind, as well as our strength, as well as our heart and soul. So there's a form of teaching. Retain the standard of sound doctrine, of teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.15 says this, Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us. This was word of mouth. Or what were those things? Well, it's the scripture we have. The apostles taught and the apostles wrote. Uh, Paul was able to say in Acts 20 to a group of Ephesian elders, I didn't shrink 
from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So there was this standardized teaching, a body of doctrine, a body of authoritative instruction. Grasp that and you realize this is where catechisms come in. This is where creeds and confessions come in. I want us to see that. We've seen Romans six seventeen. You become obedient from the heart to the form, to the standard, to the pattern of teaching to which you were committed. These early Christians were given instruction and they from the heart obeyed. 2 Timothy 1, 13, already quoted. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Follow the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me. What is, what is a summary of true doctrine? Well, it's a summary of who God is. God is one, there's only one God. And God is Trinity. Summary of, tr of true doctrine includes defining what is good, what is sound, what is healthy, what is right, what is true. And a catechism helps us to know how all the parts of God's word fit together. This is what we call rightly dividing the word of truth. A, a catechism, by means of the question and answers, brings that truth together and orders them and it produces understanding in our minds and that's the way in which our lives are transformed. Romans chapter 12 verse 2, do not be conformed to this age but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not some experience, not, nothing against experience, but we should be transformed by our minds and then we will enjoy the will of God, that being transformation. Don't be conformed. One version says, do not, which is really a paraphrase, do not allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed. Metamorphou is the Greek. We get the word metamorphosis. Total change. And that's a radical change, a metamorphosis. The greatest example, I think, would be the emergence of the butterfly from something that was not a butterfly going into the cocoon. <laughs> right? Metamorphosis. That's the word used in Romans 12 too. Be metamorphuo, metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. So we're required to continue in the faith, to be uh, stable and steadfast. First, uh, first chapter of Colossians spells that out, verse 23. We're called upon in Ephesians to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And notice this, it's the unity of the faith, not the unity of faith. It's not just believe and believe anything you like. No, the faith, when you check out what the faith means, it means the body of Christian doctrine. And Jude was able to write, contend earnestly for the faith. Not for faith, not in that particular expression in that verse, that's not what is in view, but Christianity. The faith is Christianity. Can we define what Christianity is? Yes, we can. How do we do that? Creeds, confessions, catechism. Let's go to Titus to see the job of uh, the elder. One of his functions, Titus chapter 1, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trust word, trustworthy word as taught. Do you see that? so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There's a lot in that. We could talk for hours about that, of course. But notice, he must hold firm to something tangible. The trustworthy word is taught. So obviously, 
people knew what that was. You can't hold firm to something that you don't even know exactly what it is. Again, the trustworthy word as taught. There was a body of doctrine. And then he must be able to give instruction in that doctrine, in sound doctrine. But not only that, also able to rebuke those who contradict it. All right, let's take an example. The Trinity. The elders should be able to articulate the Trinity. That is sound doctrine. And he should be able to instruct others in that sound doctrine. You should be able to tap any elder on the shoulder and say, can you explain to me what the Trinity is? And he should not be answering by saying, well, I've got a, a DVD on that somewhere and I've got a book on that somewhere. No, you should be able to tap an elder on the shoulder and say, define the Trinity for me. And he should be able to do that. And he should be able to teach that sound doctrine. And notice this, also to rebuke those who contradict it. There will always be people that will contradict sound doctrine. The Bible very clearly tells us that. And the elders' function is to be able to protect the sheep and rebuke those who bring a contradictory doctrine, who are bringing something other than sound doctrine. What are creeds? They're they're faithful summaries of what the Bible teaches. Similarly with a confession. And in a catechism, it's a form whereby we learn those doctrines from the Scriptures. Using question and answers, and then with scriptural support. Did you hear that? That's what's said in our church service. This all goes back to... Early times in Christianity, uh, we, we've seen some of this, but l- let, me, let me just express again my heart in this. The lights came on for me on this when I began to understand that it wasn't just the preaching of the gospel that transformed society in the Reformation. When we think of the Protestant Reformation, We often think of the preaching of Martin Luther. The gospel was established in the life of the church. That certainly is true. That is a right thing to think. That is exactly what happened. Very, very true. But it's not a complete picture. It was the transforming of society, the move of God that swept nations, Germany and England and the Netherlands, Holland, as we call it. Uh, On and on we could go. Scotland, Switzerland. Not only when idolatry and falsehood was removed from the worship service, but something was put in its place. The biblical gospel was proclaimed, yes. Two other things. Liturgy. That means order of worship was regulated by the scripture and people, adults, as well as children, were catechized. That's when the lights came on. Biblical preaching, biblical liturgy, and biblical catechism. That's when the people got the message. There was this three-pronged approach See, every time the people gathered to worship God, on purpose, there was thinking behind the service. There was a searching of the scripture to find out what has God ordained the worship service to be? We realized the message should be law and gospel, the law which shows us our sin, reveals sin to us, and the gospel which is the remedy for sinners. the consequences of our sin in the law and the perfect work of redemption in the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus, that should be present in every service. It should not be the case that people go to church and they don't hear the gospel. At the Reformation, that was impossible because of the liturgy of the service. The service was designed on purpose so that what God said should happen in the service happened. One of the things is the reading of Scripture. 
Give yourself to the reading of Scripture, Paul instructed. It, it, not everybody in the, the history of the church had a Bible. In fact, it's very, very rare that someone did. If you've got a Bible, you're a rarity. I know it's uh, so available to us in the 21st century, but before the printing press, you had to be very, very rich to have a Bible because what you would have had to have had would be a scribe to write out the Bible for you. You would have had to hire him for about a year, nine months to a year, to sit in a chair and every day by candlelight if necessary, if, uh, if it was dark outside, write out Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through to the book of Revelation and your copy of the Bible would be very, very thick. Before the printing press, that was the only way you'd have a Bible. And so, whether people have a Bible or not today, the instruction of God is to the church, have the Bible read. The Bible was read, the Bible was preached, and then in liturgy and catechism, the people began to get the message. As a result, the common people, the common people, not just the elite theologians, were able to gain a full and growing comprehension of the greatness of the Savior and the greatness of their salvation, not a flimsy salvation, not a not-for-sure salvation, but salvation in its fullness because with God's word, they realized just how powerful and perfect their Savior is. And the power of the Holy Spirit was present in bringing all of this together, true preaching, biblical liturgy, and catechism. That was the third element. And it grounded the people in the truth about God and the gospel. So what's the job of the preacher? To prepare himself diligently with Bible study and prayer and then to preach God's word as a herald. This is what God says with the most urgent message anyone could ever hear. The word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. The congregation, they were to prepare their hearts, and they are today, to prepare their hearts and mind to hear and heed, put into practice, God's word as if the king had sent his herald with the most urgent message to them personally, by name. If someone's name is George, if someone's name is Mildred, they're sitting in the congregation with the preacher reading the word of God and proclaiming it. And both George and Mildred are saying, this is the king's message personally to me. I'm listening to everything that comes out of the preacher's mouth, not because he's God, but he's got the word of God in his mouth. Let's, let's pray for the Holy Spirit's power to be upon preachers and hearers in a mighty way. Pray that God would bring glory to his name. Sinners would be converted to Christ. Christ's sheep would be edified, sanctified by these, these means of grace. But let's also realize the Reformation didn't happen on accident. is because they had these three forms in place. Right preaching, right liturgy, and catechism. Do you know we have creeds in our Bibles? We've already seen Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 quoted by Jesus. But there are others. And these are so important. We, we, we see that this was, this was just normal for the life of the church. Romans 10 verse 9. Remember that one? Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Seen in this light, do you realize the phrase Jesus is Lord is a creed? The word creed comes from the Latin credo and it means I believe. 
Jesus is Lord. What do you believe? Well, at the time, it could cost you everything to say Jesus is Lord because you were required to say Caesar is Lord under penalty of death. And when the Christians would not do that, in English, it's just three words. Jesus is Lord. In Greek, it's two words. Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. Just say that, you'll be fine. We'll move on. Whereas Roman soldiers won't bother you anymore. Just say a couple of words. Kaiser Curios. They wouldn't do it. The Christians wouldn't. No, Jesus is Lord. And for that, they paid their life. Paid, oftentimes paid with their life. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 12, we read these words. No one can say Jesus is Lord, which is a creed, except by the Holy Spirit. No, you can't just casually say that in the first century. Not in that context. The Romans were polytheists. They believed in many gods. And all people in the empire, without exception, had to acknowledge the divine nature of the emperor, Caesar. Uh, again, they just had to say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar's Lord. That was a creed. It had to be affirmed by all under Roman rule. And not to say that could well mean instant death. Many Christians were fed to the lions, fed to the wild animals in the Colosseum in Rome and other places because they're stubborn, heroic refusal to recite this simple affirmation to Caesar. I grew up in Chester, England, and as a youngster, an amphitheater was excavated, and uh, after a number of years, you could go stand in the amphitheater that was built by the Romans, Chester being a city built by the Romans in the 70s, that's the AD 70s, and I remember standing and thinking, there might have been entertainment here, but did Christians die where I'm standing? I don't know, maybe. It wasn't uh, a unique event. It happened over and over and over. So instead of saying Caesar is, is Lord, they proclaimed Christos ho curios, Jesus Christ is Lord. And paid for the privilege of their creed with their blood. Story after story could be told of the brave Christians who, under the threat of death, would not renounce their master. Men and women, boys and girls, who wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar, acknowledging him as a God. Instead, they confessed the creed, Jesus is Lord. It meant something. It really meant something to recite that early creed. And that's the background, as I say, to 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord, that early creed, except by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's very basic, isn't it? Jesus is Lord. And it's very evident that as Christians grew in their knowledge of God and of Scripture, so did their creeds and confessions expand. It grew. They grew over time, became more broad and comprehensive. As new ideas, novel ideas, and heresies spread in and around the church, the true Christians needed to expand the vocabulary of their creeds in order to stem the tide of false doctrines. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, affirms what we call monotheism that we find in the Shema. God is one. Mono means one. Theos means God, one God. A monotheist is someone who uh, believes in one God of the major religions in the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. We are agreed on one thing here. There's only one God. And viewed in that light, Mormonism 
is so extreme, believing in millions and even billions of gods. That's another story for another time. But Christianity has more in common with Islam than Mormonism, as Christian as Mormons would have you believe. No, on the basis of just who God is, we're closer to Islam, believing in one God. Now, of course, Islam denies the Trinity, but so does the the Mormon church as we understand the concept because we're able to define what Scripture teaches, instructs about who God is. And God is Trinity. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Well, we can start in um, verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Again, an affirmation of monotheism in accordance with the Shema. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There's one God. Again, that's a creed. The Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. One Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Ephesians, on to the right. Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body, this is verse 4, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. This is a confession that affirms our unity in Christ, the unity that we have between Jews and Gentiles in Christ. Again, do you see that? Um, There's one God. 1 Timothy 3 Verse 15, on again to the right. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Again, a confessional statement. 1 Timothy 3. Just making sure I'm in the right place. Yes, I am. I hope to come to you soon, he writes in verse 14, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. Again, describing the function of the church to be a pillar that holds something up. What is that that the church holds up? The truth. Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess. Do you see that? What we're about to read is a confession. Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, that's God, was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Another translation reads this way. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, that's God, was, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That is a confession. And scholars believe, I I agree here, that what Paul is doing is reciting a confession that was very much well known in the early church. 
we confess this. We call it the mystery of godliness. It's as if in the church service, someone would say, the elder might say, the elders may say, okay, church, let's confess the mystery of godliness. Recite after me. He, that's God, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. That's what we're reading here. That's what Paul is quoting, an early confession of the church. Concerning this verse, Pastor Tom Hicks writes this, This confession was written as the church faced a number of additional heresies, including Gnosticism, asceticism, and paganism. It confronted these newer heresies, even as it also confronted the older errors of Judaism. We learn from this that the older errors don't go away, which is why the church must keep adding to its confession. The church needed to confess that Christ is Lord, contrary to Judaism. It needed to declare the full humanity of Christ over and against Gnosticism. It needed to affirm the sufficiency of Christ's work to save, contrary to asceticism. And it needed to confess that God is one over and against the polytheism of paganism. End of quote. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Garden of Eden to our own day, truth has always been under attack. We must contend for it contend for the faith throughout Israel's history through to the time of the early church God has used short creeds and confessions found in scripture as a means to keep the faithful sound in doctrine when the 66 book canon of scripture the Protestant Bible when it closed God is not authoring a 67th book in our day. When that happened, we have our Bibles. The attack against truth didn't go away, did it? Far from it. Doctrines of demons, which is a reference to the fact that there are teachings which which have their source in the demonic, continue unabated. 2 Peter 2.1 speaks of damnable heresies. In other words, these are doctrines which, if believed, damn the soul. The folk who go around houses proclaiming a different God other than the God of Trinity, that will not acknowledge the deity of Christ, you believe the message they bring, do you know you're damned? Jesus said, In John chapter 8, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What they're doing is worse than what a drug pusher does. really is. The drug pusher gets people killed through the use of drugs. But the false teacher, the heretic, causes people to go to hell forever. Some doctrines are damnable. They damn the soul. That's why in every generation, Christians are called upon to contend earnestly for the faith, which is once and for all handed down to the saints. God has used creeds and confessions throughout the history of the church to bring understanding, to bring clarification, community, Well, doesn't doctrine divide? Oh, yeah, it it divides the true God from the false God, the true Christ from the false Christ. But it also unites. It brings community. And we say, as we recite the Apostles' Creed, for example, the Nicene Creed, the uh, Athanasian Creed, we're saying, this is what we have in common with all Christians. We've got this in common. It edifies us to say it again. And it protects us. That's our inheritance. That's our heritage as believers. And we'd be so foolish to be ignorant of these things or in any way be dismissive of these things. 
If a creed or confession is a faithful summary of what the Bible teaches, it's exceedingly precious and valuable to us. It's not scripture, but it's a summary of scripture. C.H. Spurgeon once said this, I'm unable to sympathize with a man who says he has no creed because I believe him to be in the wrong by his own showing. He ought to have a creed. What is equally certain, he has a creed. He must have one, even though he repudiates the notion. His very unbelief is, in a sense, a creed. You and I and the people around us believe something. What's your creed? Well, we can start with Jesus is Lord. There is one God and go on from there. I want to encourage you to search out the creeds. I, I remember hearing a, a beautiful testimony by a man called Jonathan Gibson and he'd lost a child. Child died very young. And as he stood at the grave site of this little one with this little box being lowered into the ground, what was recited? Well, scripture certainly was. I am the resurrection and the life. But an ancient creed was quoted, the Apostles' Creed. And he, because he knew the creed, said it along with the preacher. And when he came across certain words, it brought him courage. He could look at the death of his youngster in the face and say, with those from ancient times, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. In other words, I will see her again. Oh, every word of God is vital. And when we summarize what the word of God teaches, through the use of creeds, confessions, and catechesis, we're instructing the people of God in sound doctrine, which they can hold on in the best of times and in the harvest, hardest hardest of times. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together. May we be stirred towards sound doctrine so that we are established in the faith and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.